Amen. Now let's clap. Give it up for the goodness of God. Our Father in heaven. You know, he's a father who will never leave us nor forsake us. He's always with us. And I'm excited to be here this morning because I love Father's Day. Um, you can have a seat uh, as you are here. Um, one of the reasons I love Father's Day is because I've always wanted to be a father. Um, I don't love Father's Day because you're celebrated. I actually am very uncomfortable about being personally celebrated. I don't like birthdays, that sort of thing. Uh, but I always wanted to be a father from a very young age. I had a, a good father and was always very grateful for my father. And my father was one of those people uh, who enjoyed coaching us and kind of always being around his kids. And you could tell that he, he wanted to be present and involved in our lives. And so as I saw that, I, I wanted to, to emulate that. And, and one of the biggest joys I actually have in my life um, and I'm just so grateful for is I get to, I get to coach my kids. And I get to do some of the things for my kids that my dad did for me. And I just, I cherish that. Like that, that, is, that is something that um, I really feel blessed that I get to do. And I just want to um, kind of show you something that happened yesterday and also kind of tie this in to part of what we even do as a church. Because as a church, one of our core values is to make a difference in our community and so our church, we, we sponsor local, like, Little League teams and athletic teams. And so these, this is your five- and six-year-old Coach Fitch champions right here, the Catalyst Coach Fitch team. I know it's five- and six-year-old baseball, um, but we beat an undefeated team to win the championship yesterday. Like, so, and if you're here and you're part of the other team, we love you, too. Your team was better than ours. Um, it was, but God was on our side. <laughs> Sorry. Sponsored by the church. Well, one, of the, one of the reasons I, I enjoy coaching, I don't just coach my kids. I've, I've coached other kids um, before I moved here. Uh, I coached high school football a little bit. I coached uh, middle school football uh, a little bit. And uh, I, just, I just love, I, I enjoy coaching. I love seeing people kind of reach their potential and get better. Uh, just in, in general and in life, it's one of the reasons that I really like being a pastor, too. I like seeing people's lives change. I like seeing people get go kind of from one place uh, to the next and, like, light, like, the lights turn on. And you can almost see that faster. And sometimes you see it, like, immediately in the life of the church when there's radical conversions, which I am so thankful for. Um, but you can, you, can, you can see it in real time, and you can see it in real time in sports as well. And because I'm, I'm kind of interested in that sort of thing, and I don't know if this is just my personality or what, I also have found myself to be very interested, like, in, in psychology and sociology and history and theology and, like, what kind of makes people tick and what changes people and why things are the way they are and why things can be different, why some individuals do better than other individuals, why some groups of people do better than other groups of people. And so, like, every once in a while I get books that pop up on kind of my reading list because I, I read that kind of stuff. I'll listen to those type, types of podcasts. And one of them that came up several months ago that I decided to, to pick up and read was a book called Of Boys and Men. And it's why the modern male is struggling and why it matters and what to do about it. Now, when you read a book like this or even pick up a book like this, there's obviously some even objections that might come up. Like, what are you talking about men struggling? 
You know, I, I mean, if you, you look at our culture, I just talk about these objections because some of them are, are a little legit. Like, you know, all of our presidents have been men. Most CEOs are men. Most Congress people are all men. You know, kind of at the apex of society, you see kind of mostly, mostly men. And it's, and it's a, a reasonable objection, and I'll just kind of throw that out there. But I, I want us, if that's kind of where you are, I want you to think about a few things here with me as I kind of get into some of the findings of this book. Uh, first, even the book itself, uh, where it comes from and this data comes from, uh, it's, it's published by the Brookings Institute, and if, if you're familiar with the Brookings Institute at all, uh, you would discover that it's kind of a center-left think tank out of Washington, D.C. So some of the statistics and some of the things I'm going to be sharing with you is, is not necessarily coming from a place where you would think certain narratives would come from. Uh, second, I would like you to consider, and the book points this out as well, is that although at the apex of society, some of your highest learners, your CEOs, your congresspeople, presidents, and all of those sorts of things are mostly men, most people do not live at the apex of society. That's a, that's a very small percentage of our culture and where, we, where people are at. Most people are somewhere in the middle or below. And what Richard Reeves and the Brookings Institute points out here and what I'll kind of show you is most of those people who are in the middle and below end up being men. Third is that if you feel like there's kind of this narrative of if men succeed, women don't, or if women succeed, men don't, it's just the wrong narrative. I, I think it's actually a narrative perpetuated by the fall. You know, there had to be a winner or a loser yesterday of that baseball game. There doesn't have to be winners and losers when it comes to men and women. Men can lift up women, and women can lift up men. And I think that's an important thing for us to think about. When you see the fall in Genesis 3, what you see is that men and women begin to divide. And instead of come together and begin to lift one another up and to help each other succeed. You know, we've kind of created sometimes in our culture, like this battle of the sexes. If men are doing well, women can't do well. If men do well, women can't do well. And I just think it's the wrong narrative. And so I just want to address those uh, objections if you have them. Uh, you can disagree with me, that's fine, um, but you're not going to like this sermon then. Um, <laughs> that's okay, you don't have to like every sermon I preach. But I want to read, read to you some, just a few statistics that are here in this book, um, and you can find elsewhere. Uh, the first is this, and in context of why men are struggling, and this just shows kind of the, the struggles, not necessarily why. But 15% of men report having no close friends. In the 90s, that was closer to about 3%. And so in the U.S., our country, that's roughly 25 million men say they have almost no healthy relationships, friendships, um, and social connections. John Steinbeck, in his book, I, I really enjoyed John Steinbeck, but he writes, in The Mice of Men, he writes this, a guy needs somebody to be near him. A guy goes nuts if he ain't got nobody. Don't make no difference who a guy is, as long as he's with you. I tell you, a guy gets too lonely and he gets sick. This is why I think this is also true. You know, we, we talk about this because I, I want to make sure that we are encouraging people and that we are lifting people up and we don't leave people where we're at. But in all uh, uh, um, intersections of people, everybody right now, like deaths of despair on the rise. But one thing that has held true and always has been true and kind of continues to be true is that two-thirds of all deaths of despair are by men. Third thing I want to share with you. 
there are 9 million men right now of prime working age that have decided just to sit out of the workforce. These are men between the ages of 25 and 54 who can't not find a job. They have chosen not to find a job. They are sitting at home, unemployed, and have decided to sit out on civil society in general. They're not going to church. They're not getting married. They're not going to work. And they're not engaged in their local communities. According to the book Men at Work, half of these men are actively taking pain meds. In terms of education, guys, we're getting our butts kicked from a very young age. Two-thirds of all the highest GPAs belong to women. Like, good job, ladies. Really. The bottom two-thirds all belong to men. This creates tons of problems. If you're thinking about going to college, or we have a lot of professors here, or people who even work at the university, this means two-thirds of all of your top applicants are all women. And so what this has done, even as a social, social shift, is in the 70s, we made a big push to get women into college, which we should have. At that point in time, when Title IX was passed in the 70s, there's a roughly 13% gap between men and women as far as college education were concerned. College education is concerned. Now, that has flipped. Not only that, there's a 15 percentage point gap between men and women with women at the top. And so something is going on here where women are, or men aren't going and getting a higher education, which is also creating a ton of problems. Let's check this out. One in three boys with only a high school education are part of that nine million who is sitting out of the workforce. So that's roughly five million men with only a high school education who aren't either going on to a trade school or aren't being pushed to further their education or go into the military or anything like that. They are sitting at home, five million. That's, that's larger than China's people, uh, China's, uh, people Liberation Army. And then let me share one more thing. One in seven men have a felony. One in seven men have a felony. This makes it extremely hard to find work and also to find a place to live. I, I tell you this because these are statistics kind of a men and boys, but boys become men and men become fathers and I want us as a church and just as people in general, I want us to be thinking about how do we shape boys into men? How do we, how do we help those who are hurting? How do we raise boys ourselves? And I don't have all the answers here this morning. I mean, that would take way too long, but I think it's the, the, the obligation and the responsibility of the church to make sure that we are creating healthy men and healthy fathers and that we are pouring into them, but also that we know like, hey, there actually is a problem going on. And we want to be the solution to that problem in the ways that we can. And so I just pray that maybe God would speak to you and empower you to do that and to do that within the context of our church as well. Because I want to help men, young men, boys. I want to help women as well. Everybody reach their potential. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. Uh, as you go there... Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and I, I think his purpose seems to be this. His, his purpose seems to be, as he writes to this church in Corinth, he wants to build up the lives and faith of those who are weak and struggling. 
both inside of the church and outside of the church. As you read the letter, you can see his heart for those who are weak and struggling. And as he does this, and as you read through the letter, we're going to the end of the letter here, what you discover about this church is something really interesting, is that they are extremely self-centered. They're actually looking at the people who are on the lower rungs of society, and they're not welcoming them in. They're not asking them to be a part of the church. In fact, they're actively excluding them. They're actively excluding them from the Lord's Supper and from worship. They're not inviting them over to their houses. They're not having conversations with them. In addition to that, they're cel- they're, they kind of have this celebrity culture thing going on uh, between Paul and this guy named, uh, this preacher named Apollos. Well, you follow him. I follow him. He's more articulate. He's better. Like, so there's like dividing even over what biblical, what, not biblical, but what, what Christian teachers they are devoted to. The church is completely immoral. When you read about the church, it's, it's just awful. I mean, people are doing just horrible things, and they just generally seem like, man, there's so much wrong going on in this church, and the, their worship services are chaotic. And even wor- maybe even worse than that, they're confused about what our faith even stands on, the idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so there's just kind of this lack of hope and lack of vision for the future and what the church could be like and what their community could be like. And, and Paul is just kind of laying into them throughout this this letter, and he's, he's reminding them, like, you're supposed to be salt and light among the culture. You're supposed to be the people who are, 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 are changing everybody that's around you, not being changed and formed into the image of the culture around you, but you're supposed to be doing the opposite of that. But instead, they seem to just be absorbing the wrongs and the ills around them. But as he writes, what he does is he doesn't just correct them, but he encourages them. He actually even starts the letter, and he calls them saints, which means like holy ones. In other words, like he, he tells them that you guys are all messed up. I'm not saying this about you. I just pointed it all at you. You might be. Um, you're all messed up, but you're still God's people. And as God's people, God still has a plan for you. God has a plan for your community. God has a plan for your church. And God wants to take the brokenness within you and around you, and he wants to fix it, and he wants to turn it around, which is inter- really interesting to me, that he doesn't just give up. So you're in a section that if you have your Bibles and there's a title, it often is titled, like, The Final Instructions. And these are part of Paul's final instructions to the church there that seems to be pretty messed up and backwards. And he says this to them. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, there are five imperatives here, five commands. I'm going to reduce them to four because two of them are pretty much uh, synonyms here and are used together all throughout the Bible. We're going to begin with this command that says to act like men or be strong here. The word act like men is actually one word in the Greek, and it's andrizomai. And this word literally means act like men. Figuratively, it means be courageous. So that means if you are reading out of the NIV or the NLT, which is just another translation, I'm reading out of the ESV here to show you what this is. What the translators have done is they've taken that word and they've translated it into be courageous, which is a good translation, by the way, because in context, Paul probably means it in that way because he's writing both to men and women here, and he's probably not actually telling women to act like men. However... I believe Paul also intentionally uses this word in the Greek for courage on purpose. 
Because Jesus actually uses a different word for courage. When he shows up to people and he tells people to be courageous, he uses a different word in the Greek. And the word that Jesus uses, if you uh, read your different translations, what you'll discover is a, a word that primarily means take heart. It means kind of to cheer up, to be encouraged, and so forth. But it's a, it's a different image. It's a, it's a, it's a different metaphor. And it's, it's kind of this metaphor that's telling you to, to look in. Paul is using a different word, I think, for a different reason. And I don't think Paul has a problem associating courage with manliness. But not only that, what he is doing is he is giving us a different image with this word for a reason. The image that the word act like men means or gives us is kind of this battlefield image. It's the same word that when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek in the Old Testament that Moses used for Joshua. When Moses told Joshua to be strong and courageous, the translators decided to use that word in the Greek. The word that means act like men. There's this image that Moses was giving Joshua there that they are getting ready for battle and there are going to be obstacles ahead of them. And not only do they need to have courage, but they need to be encouraged so that they can move forward. Joshua then repeats these words as he is getting ready to take people into battle to go into the promised land and to move forward. And I think this image is there because what is going on is they're trying to, they're trying to build up courage in these men that are going to have to move forward. And in general, I think Paul is fine with using this word because historically men were seen as courageous people that we were to in, instill courage in men that was a good thing to do and I think it's still a good thing to do for our young men and our young boys it was celebrated I kind of wonder today a little bit if it's not celebrated as much as it used to of course, there are excesses to it. But when I think about some of the times, the ways that we're raising our kids, especially kind of in our middle-class lives, I think the word that we use, usually kind of use a lot when we think about what we want for our kids is safety. And I want to keep my kids safe. I want to make sure that they're not abused, that they're not abandoned. We all of our, just so you want, all of our background checked, all of our people that work with our kids, their background checked. Like, we want to make sure that, that we're doing what we need to do to keep our kids safe. But as I've studied through the years, and I've, I've kind of looked at how anxious we are and how much we're struggling, I've decided that I, I want to think when in terms of, of my, my, my kids and my boys and my young girl, I want to instill courage in them. I want them to take chances. I want them to learn how to move forward and even learn how to fail and get back up and give them opportunities to do that. I want to find ways that they can be courageous. This is interesting in this book, they're trying to um, figure out why courage used to be a, a trait and something we actually used to see in men. But when you look at men not entering the workforce, men not doing certain things, men not traveling like they used to and, and doing, you know, kind of being you know, what we used to consider, I guess, manly in a good way, uh, there's, there's like a lot of debate 
um, of why they're not and, and why actually women are kind of on a trajectory like you're heading up this way. Like women are becoming more courageous and they're traveling more. They're, they're applying to more jobs. They're, they're doing these things and stepping out in ways that, that men aren't. And there's not a lot of data that shows necessarily like why that's the case. By the way, that's, it's a good thing. Like I want my, my daughter to have the same opportunities my son has and my sons have. But the, the theory behind this is, is that we have told our young ladies and we have told women it is more difficult for you to get ahead. And so we've, we've basically instilled in them, you've got to work hard. If you don't, you won't get ahead. And what we're discovering potentially is that that's, it, that's not discouraging them. It's actually making them more resilient. And I would say the same needs to be true for our kids, our young men. Is not that they're in competition with our females, but we need to be teaching them to work hard. We need to be teaching them ways, helping them find ways to be resilient and to move forward. The father of our faith is a man named Abraham. Abraham is known as our father, you know, Father Abraham. You know, it's a good song. I'm not a singer. But Abraham, Abraham's an interesting story. If you read about Abraham, he actually... Uh, he has this call on his life. Before, before he gets the call on his life, he has everything he needs for the most part. He's got a farm. He's got cattle. Like he's got a family surrounding him and everything that you basically need to hang out, live the good life, die, and whatever. But Abraham gets a call on his life. And this call is actually to leave all of that. And God tells him, like, hey, if you leave all of that, you're, you're going to be the person that I use to bless the entire world. The entire world is going to be blessed on you leaving, on you deciding that you're going to take a step of faith and you're going to go to this other land and you're going to build and you're going to start a family. I know you're way too old to start a family, but you're going to, you're going to start a family. And God says, you need to believe me in this. And so you get to the New Testament and, and what we're told is what made Abraham a righteous man was not just that he left, but he had enough faith in God to leave. He had enough faith in God to take the risk that God told him to take to leave everything. Everything that he knew that was going to make him comfortable. Everything that he knew that he needed to kind of live the good life and all of these sorts of things. But what made him right in God's eyes is that he was going to trust God. One of the things that I've heard uh, Dr. Varner say is that you spell faith R-I-S-K. You spell it by taking risks. And I think that we need, when we think about our, our young men and women, we, we need to think in terms of how are we helping them take risks for God? Even How are we helping them live by faith, knowing that God's going to take control of their lives and help them fulfill their call? So we want to cultivate the call in God's life. We don't want to make it easy on them all the time. Jesus didn't make it easy to follow him. Guys would come up to Jesus and be like, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus would go, hey, do you know I'm homeless? Like, do you know you might be persecuted? Do you know you might be abandoned? You know, all the time I, I think about sometimes even the way that we promote our, our, our faith. And I, I, think, I think Jesus can make the world a better place. I think he makes the society better. I think he can make us fall in love with what we should fall in love with and be committed to what we should be committed to. But Jesus, even as you think about the disciples who become apostles, 
Jesus didn't send them out and say, hey, by the way, because you followed me, like everything's going to be safe. Everything's going to be easy. No. Jesus said, you're going to move forward, and you're going to move the kingdom forward. And by the way, each and every one of you is probably going to be persecuted, and it's going to be difficult. I think we need to be challenging our young men. I think they need that. I think they need that. I think it's what it means to teach people to act like men, to be courageous. The second thing uh, we're told here uh, in this text, as Paul is writing to the church, he says this. He says, be watchful. Be watchful. The church he writes to, it's extremely depraved. It's all messed up. You know, but one of the things that Paul notices in this church, and he even brings out, is that this church has a ton of potential. He, he sees the potential and the spiritual vitality that could be there in the church. This is the book, by the way, if you've ever read about the spiritual gifts. This is where Paul talks about the spiritual gifts and the potential that he sees in the church there. And he says, all of you, there's just like the chaos and all these sorts of things going on. But man, you have, you have a potential to be an, an incredible group of people that are able to experience and share the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and to come together and do good work in your communities. He says, some of you are doing it and some of you are exercising your gifts, but there's still a problem with y'all. So you're not actually, you're not actually seeing it in everybody. You're saying that there's some people within the church that you don't need. Some people who are economically depressed or the weak or those who are struggling or those people who don't even have the same gifts as you have. And what Paul is saying is that you all need each other. The hand cannot say to the foot that I don't need you. And Paul is calling the church out in this. He's saying be watchful. Make sure that you're, you're not allowing the church to just become chaotic. But also look for the gifts that other people have and bring them out. I brought up that there are 9 million people not working. 9 million men not working. Just decided to kind of sit out on the sidelines. That's 9 million men who have potential. That are not contributing to their communities. To their families. To their neighbors. Just sitting on the sidelines. And I think it's part of our job to see potential and help bring it out. And people. This is why I shared one of the reasons I really enjoy coaching. And it's one of the things that I learned from my own father uh, was that this is kind of what coaches do. It's what good coaches do. They see potential and they try to bring it out. Uh, my dad uh, coached me all the way basically up until middle school and, and, and most sports. And I really appreciated that. And one of the things that I really appreciated about my dad is he kind of learned my personality and he tried to like even kind of, he knew how I needed to be coached and how I didn't. And I got to a certain age and he actually stopped yelling at me, um, which I appreciated. Uh, but I think he noticed, he noticed one thing and he would say this, is that I'm the hardest person on myself than anybody else. When I messed up, I knew it. Like I, I, would, I would make the correction pretty quickly. Um, but as I kind of got into middle school and high school, you had to get used to getting yelled at by people. Um, and I must have come home discouraged one day, and I remember him telling me this. I, I remember him telling me, hey, Josh, if a coach ever quits yelling at you, it means he's kind of given up on you. But if a, if a coach is continuing to yell and instruct, it means that he sees potential in you. 
And so you, you, need, you need to take that and you need to continue to, to use that and move on and not be discouraged by that. And I always found that extremely helpful and extremely useful in life in general. Not that you should be yelling at everybody to try to bring out their potential. You need to use discernment. Uh, the Bible says, do not bring our children to wrath, fathers. <laughs> and so you need to know your kids and you need to know your sons. While at the same time, I do believe that it's the role of the father, a role of a father and mother, to make sure that they're seeing potential in their kids' lives and the potential in the, uh, of the people's lives around them. And they are doing what they can to help bring it out, to help lift them up and to help encourage them in a way so that they can contribute to their church, to society, to life. So we want to make sure that we're doing that. In a similar note, I, I just want to kind of point out here that one in seven men are, are felons. And so I want us to kind of think about this even just as, as the church. If one in seven men are a felon, uh, that's one in seven men who a lot of times are fathers or will be, be potential fathers who um, will have a ton of uh, difficulty getting a job and finding a place to live. And so if you are somebody who owns a business or has a trade or has a, a particular skill, I think you need to think really hard about trying to figure out how do I find people who are really wanting to be uh, rehabilitated and teaching them a trade or skill so that they can work. Um, I'm interested in real estate and how those, all those sorts of things work as well. And one of the things that I've discovered is best practices are is you don't even take applicants, applications from felons. Um, you don't. And so maybe if you own rentals or if you own properties or if you have places, maybe you decide I'm going to designate certain properties, certain rentals or whatever to take applicants of felons and get to know them. You don't have to rent it out to them right away. I think character matters, all those sorts of things. But you get to know them before you make a decision. You start to maybe work with uh, uh, like man-to-man ministry in those instances because these are men often who are coming out of prison who often need to uh, invest in their kids and in their communities, but they also need a chance. And following Jesus, like I said, it involves risk. It involves risk. Jesus, when he chose the disciples, he chose a guy named Matthew who was hated by everyone. Not only that, he chose Judas who is betrayed by. Even, even, even Jesus was betrayed by somebody that he decided to bring in and to help. Third is we need to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Now, I point out the, the word the here um, and then faith because what Paul is doing here is he is saying that there is a faith that is passed down. That it's not something that is just there, but you have to pass it down. This is Moses telling Joshua to be strong and courageous, for the Lord is with you. And in brackets, it would, it would basically be, as the God was with me. And the crazy thing about Moses doing that is he's passing that to Joshua. Moses, is, Moses didn't even get to reach the promised land. But what he knows is that God is with him, and he's telling Joshua, God is going to be with you. And he's giving that faith that he had to Joshua. This is the same thing that David does with Solomon as he passes it down. This is Jesus giving it to the disciples. And Paul here in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he tells us this. He says, then, brothers, uh, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either, spoken, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 
And so what he is doing here in both instances is he's saying that this faith is passed down to us. It's given to us, that this is, comes from one person to another. In the context of boys and men, for boys to become men of faith, generally they need to be taught by men of faith. It needs to pass be passed down. All the data and all the literature that we have unequivocally shows that men do really well, or boys do really well when they're taught by men. They do, they do, they do need to listen to females. My kids, like they get in a lot of trouble if they don't listen to females. Trust me, I got a southern wife. But the data shows that test scores, uh, retention, all of those things go up when there's a male in the classroom in our local schools. And even when it comes to discipleship. And one of the things that maybe is we have young men in here and they're preparing for college and preparing to think about what you want to do and the impact that you're going to have on people. What we're discovering right now is there's almost no male teachers in our grade schools. And it's, it's obviously hurting our young boys. And so maybe that you feel a call to go be a teacher someday or to be a coach and to be in those places and to help them. Not only that, we think about this in terms of our church. Uh, this is reason that, you know, we ask unequivocally and unapologetically, and this is a shameless plug, for men to help in our children's ministry. Boys who are discipled by their dads and other men are more likely to stay in the faith. Right now we have uh, our high school, we have some high schoolers here in this room. And if you look over here, actually, Elisa pointed this out. If you look over in this section here, we have mostly boys over here. Which is actually, it's, it's a really cool thing to see. Not a lot of churches are like that. Uh, last year, what we did, because all of our uh, students were actually kind of by themselves over here in this other room and uh, I'm like I don't know if that's right or whatever so I decided I like I told you I like to know like how things work and um, sociology and psychology so I, I didn't know like should they be over there by themselves and I wasn't sure and what I did is I began to read up on it and what we discovered is that the 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 number one indicator of whether or not people are going to continue the faith after high school is whether or not they worship with the larger church and so when we discovered that, we're like, you're out of there, you're in here. But why is that? The reason for that is because they're more likely to bump shoulders with you. And so our job as a church is to see these young men and women over here and to encourage them, is to pass down our faith to them, is to see their potential, to see their gifts and point that out in them and to celebrate that and try to, to try to bring that out. And so fathers and men, this is a challenge to you to see these young men over here and encourage them. You don't even have to know them. Just tell them you're glad they're at church. I could tell you, I could, I'm not going to go through the list over here, but these are some great young men. Some great young men. And they need to see these men standing firm in the faith and encouraging them. And then finally, last but not least, Paul tells us this. He says, let all that you do be done in love. All of this that we do, all of this that we are trying to do as a church, all of this that we are trying to do to be good neighbors is because we want to love people well. We want to love people well. The mission of this church is to love God, love people, and make disciples. 
We believe that the ultimate man, Jesus, called us to do that. And so that's what we're called to do. That we're, act, we're called to act in love in all that we do and in all things. And so we want to make sure that we are a church and a place and a people that are loving both young men who are going to become future fathers well, that we're loving young women who are going to become future mothers and spiritual mothers well. And so I pray that our time together this morning gives us some food for thought of how we can encourage boys to become men. And I think that's instilling courage in them. It's teaching them to be strong and courageous. It's seeing the gifts that they have. It's lifting them up and encouraging them. And it's us passing our faith onto them. Fathers, take responsibility for your children's faith at home as well. This is what it means to love our sons well. It's what it means to raise them up so that they will be men of God so that they will be men that follow Jesus, so they will be men that help other men in a culture where men are struggling. And so I pray that you'll help me do that. Fathers, I love you. I thank you. I want to encourage you this morning. Let me pray for you. Father, I give you praise and thanks this morning because you are a good father. You are present with us. You... Um, You bless those of us with kids. With people to love, to cherish, to take care of. They're people that we get to be responsible for, that we get to encourage, that we get to build up, that we get to lift up, that we get to shepherd, that we get to guide. that we get to see potential in. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to do all of those things well. I pray for the dads in the room. All of us are trying to figure out what it means to raise kids, whether they're, they're very young or even very old. We all desire to be a good dad and be a good father, yet we all fall short. And so I pray that collectively as we steward our children and our family well, that you would help us to encourage one another to do that. That you help us to see the gifts in our, not only in our own kids, but also in the life of the church. Part about being a part of a church is you get to see other people's kids. You get to encourage other kids in the faith. And so I pray that we would do that well. I pray for people who maybe have come today and Father's Day is a weird day for them. Maybe they were abandoned by their father. Or their father was harsh, lacked grace, didn't bring out the good in them, but only pointed out the wrong. May you bring healing to them. May you bring hope to them. May you bring comfort to them that we have a Father who loves us in heaven. Father, we thank you for Jesus who is the ultimate man who teaches us how to love, who teaches us how to be kind. 
who teaches us how to shepherd, who teaches us how to challenge, who gives us hope. Let us be that kind of man and men and fathers. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All you, everybody sitting in the pews this morning, we're just going to kind of end with this uh, benediction here. Uh, fathers especially, we just want to bless you. Just kind of continue to bow your heads and, or just put out your hands even and just listen here as Jason sings and I kind of have something I want to share. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. As you go, um, I want especially all the men to know uh, this morning that I really appreciate getting the opportunity to shepherd you. If you're a part of this church, I, I take that responsibility um, uh, seriously. Um, and through the years, I've, I've, I've gotten to either pour into young men or, or young boys and to shepherd people. And it's one of the things that I told you that I, that I enjoy. Um, but I also believe is a big responsibility and also a privilege. And so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you that I get the opportunity for some of you to be a spiritual father or a spiritual friend, um, or maybe some of you see me as a, a son, a uh, foolish son. That's fine, too. Um, but as such, one of the things that I think dads should do and spiritual fathers should do and people who love their flock should do is to make sure they give them good gifts. Um, and uh, on Father's Day, if you were here last year, you probably might know this is coming, but I think a dad's responsibility is to make sure their kids have ice cream every once in a while. So um, you're going to get ice cream today as you leave. Um, and another thing about Father's Day is like Mother's Day, you only give moms the gift. On Father's Day, everybody gets a gift. Okay? So everybody gets ice cream on Father's Day. So as you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you and give you peace and ice cream. Happy Father's Day. Amen.